everybody, and welcome to Well Said, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's podcast where we talk with students, faculty, and staff about what's going on on campus and around the world. And today we're talking about disruptive demographics with James Johnson, Keenan Distinguished Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship at UNC Keenan Flagler Business School and Director of the Urban Investment Strategies at the Frank Hawkins Institute of Private Enterprise. When talking about the changing demographics that are impacting the United States, what are some of the big trends that you're seeing right now? In response to that question, I typically say there are two colorful processes that are dramatically transforming all of our institutions in America today. First colorful process is the browning of America, which refers to the growing role that immigrants and international migration is playing in transforming the complexion of our society. And the second colorful process is the graying of America, which refers to the aging of our native-born population. And the real excitement and dynamics and disruptions that exist in our society today really occur at the intersection of the browning of America on the one hand and the graying of America on the other hand. What is it about these two trends that make them so important? This, this set of demographic changes, both the magnitude and the rate at which they are occurring, are probably unprecedented, unparalleled in terms of their impact on our society. Aging, for an example, is, you know, is largely a function of the maturing of the boomer generation, those of us who were born between 1946 and 1964. There are 81 million of us and on January 1st of 2011, the first baby boomer born in America turned 65 and became eligible for literally everything. <laughs> so every day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year for the next 20 years, we baby boomers will be turning 65 to the tune of 8,000 per day. That's a lot of people, and the average person turning 65 today is going to live another 18.7 years. So it's not just the boomer, the pig and the python, as it was, marching out, but we're going to live much longer than most of our actuarial tables assumed when we develop Social Security and a range of other programs. We're going to live much longer, and uh, that raises a whole series of challenges for us in our society because of the whole notion of caregiving and the, the financial supports that we're going to need to sustain them, to accommodate, uh, enhance longevity. We now think living to 100 on a routine basis is well within reach. There's one school of thought that says the person who will live to 130 has already been born. Okay, so let's keep talking about the grain of America a little bit here. And one of the big problems that I see right off the bat is that at some point, there's going to be a massive amount of people leaving the workforce because they're retiring. How big of a problem could that be, and what are some of the other problems that this grain of America trend can create? Well, they all are not going to leave all at once, first of all, because of we've had a great recession, and even some of the uh, our seniors who left the workforce prior to the great recession their retirement portfolios were adversely impacted by the re recession. So many of them are actually back in the workplace. They're called the newly unretired. Secondly, many people who had anticipated retiring because of the Great Recession are now remaining in the workforce longer. So for the first time in history now, we have four generations in the workplace. 
everyone from the pre-boomer born in 1945 or earlier to the millennial born in 1981 to 2000 and Gen X and Gen Y in between that all four generations are in the workplace, all of whom arrive in the workplace with different values, different work ethics, different orientations to technology and digital literacy and the like, and we have an HR system that is basically a one-size-fits-all. There will be huge succession. I mean, ultimately, we're going to have to leave. There will be huge succession, but that's a challenge because most organizations don't have succession plans. Uh, how do you think about replacing you know, all of the people that are going to be leaving the workforce? These data are old, but I did a, a study several years back where I looked at UNC Chapel Hill and the UNC system asking the question, what percentage of the faculty were aging baby boomers? At that time, at Carolina, 66% of the faculty were aging baby boomers. At that time, for the UNC system as a whole, it was 77% of the faculty. So how do you think about replacing you know, that large? Now, you don't have to replace everybody at one time, but it's an impending wave that you have to think about. Uh, and Carolina's UNC system is not unique in that regard. All universities have this this, this challenge. So the competition for talent and resources is going to be pretty fierce for that reason moving down the road. So multi-generational workforce and then how do we think about caregiving and the responsibilities that increasingly large numbers of us will have because it's not part of our HR system of thinking today that you might have elder care responsibilities and particularly if you have a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia, you're going to have to figure out how to squeeze work in. You know, we talk a lot in HR circles about work-life balance. Those of us who study this aging and the workforce and the implications, we've thrown that concept out. We now talk about work-life integration because you're going to have to figure out how to integrate work and life if you have a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia. This is, I think, the challenge for workforce. Caregiving responsibilities result in a $40 billion loss in work productivity annually because people don't talk about it for fear of reprisal because we have an HR system that doesn't accommodate it from the beginning. And it's not something you walk around with on your sleeves that you can visually see or the, or the like. You don't know who necessarily has these responsibilities, but it can be all-consuming. I've had the experience personally, so I can tell you it's all-consuming when you, if you are committed to your loved ones who are aging and the like, it's literally a full-time job. Let's talk a little bit about the other trend that you mentioned at the beginning. What exactly do you mean by the browning of America? It's all about a fundamental change in our immigration law in 1965. Prior to 1965, we had an immigration law in this country that said if we were going to allow the foreign-born to come to America, it was important that they not upset the existing racial and ethnic balance of our country as it existed at the turn of the 20th century. So we had an express preference for people who were phenotypically similar to Anglo-Saxons, people who'd come to America, learn to speak English, sometimes anglicize their names and the like, and this melting pot thing was supposed to work really well. In other words, we operated on a quota system that favored people from Europe and that was discriminatory against people from other regions of the world for the most part. But that all changed in 1965, coincident with the civil rights movement and domestic life, 
we liberalized our immigration law via something called the Hart Seller Act of that year of 1965. That act eliminated those discriminatory provisions based on geographic origin, opening up the doors of our country to people who heretofore had not been allowed to come in very large numbers, mainly people from Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. These are people of color and from different regions of the world, and the numbers increased dramatically over time. Prior to 1965, we only allowed about 206,000 legal immigrants to enter the country on an annual basis. After 1965, it moved quickly to about 560, 70,000 annually, and it's continued to grow today between a million and 1.1 million people, legal immigrants, entering our country all contributing to the growing diversity of our population. And then we, you know, we, after 1965, we developed a refugee policy, you know, for asylees, refugees, and parolees who were being persecuted in their homelands and the like. But when they come, those numbers fluctuate over time, but they all contribute to the growing diversity of our population. And then, of course, you got increased outmarriage or intermarriage among the groups. And so that further contributes to what I call the browning of America because it's changing the complexion of our society such that today we got about 45, 46 million people who are foreign born in America. Close to half of them are Hispanic and 20 odd percent of them are Asian. Uh, Non-Hispanic whites only account for about 19 percent. What are some of the challenges and problems that are coming along with this demographic shift? First and foremost, a lot of people are not happy about, about the, the, the changes that are accompany, you know, immigration-driven population change. There are all kinds of misconceptions out there that, are, that fuel anxiety and fear. And I think you have to understand that all of this population change is occurring precisely at the time that our economy is changing dramatically. And in the midst of a great recession, where lots of native-born workers are struggling and the like, and we have newcomers coming in that are far more entrepreneurial than we are, more likely to do work that we are not accustomed to doing in some instances at the lower end of the market, and highly skilled immigrants at the upper end of the market. I mean, you know, in an economic downturn, if you're struggling, you're looking for somebody to blame. And it's usually the most recent arrival that you want to take your frustrations out on. So there's that side of it. And then after 1965, we've had a contiguous border on the South that has been relatively fluid. So unauthorized immigration became more of a problem. So that's a hot button issue. You know, these people broke the law by coming here. There's this assumption that they cost more than they contribute. And when you look at it, it's far more complicated than what people, the sound bites that you hear. So um, so it becomes a, um, you know, hotly contested issue, as we see in the current election cycle. I mean, they, they, these are wedge issues, if anything, I think. How are these changes in the demographics affecting the business world? Uh, you know, the Latino market is probably a $1.5 trillion market. In business school, we like to say that's adult money. And so it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of marketing strategy. That you you want to be culturally sensitive and nuanced and understand 
the consumer preferences and tastes within those groups. But they're very large markets, but you don't want to insult people by not understanding and respecting their culture and the like. So it's not a trivial matter. We, you need to be you need to understand the cultural nuances and the cultural dynamics that undergird these populations. And, and one often mistake that businesses make is to assume a one-size-fits-all marketing strategy, say for the Hispanic population. I like to say there's no such thing as a Hispanic. There are people from Mexico, Central America, South America, and you know, you gotta unpack, you gotta understand because it's not, they're not all the same. They have different kinds of cultural orientations and the like. And the more you respect that culture and appreciate the differences and the like, then the better off you're going to be in terms of being able to penetrate those markets and, and the like. So it's all about segmentation and figuring out where you can get the biggest bang for your buck. So it seems like the common theme here is that With these changing demographics, the one-size-fits-all method that we've used here in the United States for so long isn't going to work anymore. Moving forward, is getting rid of that one-size-fits-all mentality one of the most important things that we need to do? If we're going to compete, we're going to have to do that. You cannot compete, thrive, and prosper by ignoring the diversity that exists within our population. Diversity, at the end of the day, is a competitive advantage for us. Uh, You get far greater ideas, far more innovation from a diverse gene pool than you do from a homogeneous gene pool. And so we have to understand and appreciate that. And the more we do that, the better off we're going to be, the more competitive we're going to be in the global marketplace. We got to understand, you know, this demography is core to our future viability in the global marketplace. It's not trivial. It's a very core component. And we got to look at it that way. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. And don't forget to check back to unc.edu next week for another episode of Well Said.